Hello, welcome to Being With Purpose. We all have transitional times of change in our lives. Sometimes a new path is forged because of tough circumstances, and other times by the sweet experiences of life. Either way, we're called to new unknown territory. That space is filled with creative possibility to design a life of meaning and happiness. We'll explore topics that touch the many facets of our lives, from work and entrepreneurship, to navigating change and mindset shifts, to what it means to follow what's calling to us. Join us as we chat with others who found their true calling and are living an authentic, inspired life they love, being with purpose. Before we jump in, I'd like to thank RockVox for sponsoring this podcast. They provide podcast services here in Rochester, New York, and have a full recording and production studio. Thank you, Scott. Check them out at rockvox.com. Mouth off at Rockvox. Welcome, everybody. I have the pleasure of talking with Lauren Buckman today. Lauren is the author of Make to Know, From Spaces of Uncertainty to Creative Discovery. In our conversation, we'll explore themes within his book around the topics of creativity, their creative process, and transformation. Lauren is President Emeritus of the Art Center of Design in Pasadena, California, and an international leader in art and design education. He is also a theater director, dramatic literature professor, and the author of a book on filmic adaptions of Shakespeare's plays. He hosts Change Labs, Conversations on Transformation and Creativity, a podcast in which he conducts interviews with leading artists, designers, and cultural innovators. Lauren previously served on the faculty of University of California, Berkeley. He left that position to become president of California College of the Arts and later Saybrook University. He holds a PhD from Stanford University in Drama and Humanities. And we're so glad to have him on the podcast today. Well, Lauren, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast today and appreciate your time. Of course. It's delightful to be here. And thanks for thanks for reaching out. Yes. You know, I, I read your book and that will be the essence of our conversation today. And for those listening, um, Lauren's book, the name of it is Make to Know from Places of Uncertainty to Creative Discovery. And I found myself saying yes throughout the throughout the book again and again. So thank you for writing it. Lovely. All right, so we've got a big topic today. Uh, I'd love to talk about creativity and the creative process and how that can lead to transformation. You've spent your life in creative fields and multiple disciplines not only as an artist, but also in leading creative teams and people. So I wondered if you could share, I don't know if definition is the right word, but your perspective on creativity and the process. Well, I think um, there is a part of creativity that's um, in the creative process that has captured my imagination. And I can, I can talk about it this way. I'm particularly fascinated with what the making process reveals. So I I love it when writers tell me that 
their characters told them what they wanted to say. Or um, when an artist like Alexander Calder says, I think best in wire. Um, uh, Umberto Eco, in a postscript to uh, The Name of the Rose, his novel, said um, hilariously, um, I didn't know Jorge was the murderer until I put him in the library. Um, so in short, I love what making can tell us about what we want to create. Um, and all of this, of course, contra contrasts with, you know, the, what we learned in school about Michelangelo, say, who, you know, saw the angel in the sto stone and chipped away until he set it free, that this notion that we have which I trace in the book as to why I think we have it, but this notion that we have that the artist's work is somehow to manifest, manifest great vision, or manifest preconceived vision. And what I have discovered and what artists and designers tell me is that it's not really the way it works, that they have points of entry into their work and into their projects. They have deep abiding questions, they have notions. Sometimes they just have a feeling. Sometimes they just start to do something. Uh, one artist talks to me about she gets a kind of stomachache and she recognizes what that stomachache tells her and how she needs to deal with that stomachache. But whatever the point of entry is, what art, far from manifesting uh, an already known vision, what these artists and designers tell me and what I'm so fascinated with is they go into a place really of the unknown, but they begin to make. And, and in making, I define that in a, in a very broad way. It can be writing, it can be painting, it can be working with clay, it can be uh, uh, organizing space, it can be taking musical notes and trying to put them together, it can be moving language around in a poetic form, whatever the form of making is, um, th that process is revelatory. And so far from manifesting what already you can somehow conceive, you, our capacity to get into this process and begin to shape and to make and to engage is really what ultimately helps us understand what our work needs to be. And I'll just add a quick postscript. It also helps us to understand who we are mm. and that the making itself gives us access to something of ourselves that we otherwise might have trouble accessing. In fact, Joan Didion says, I'd have no reason to write if I could access my thoughts in any other way. And her career as a writer was so much about trying to understand, trying to understand her own internal process, trying to essentially learn about herself, in her case, her grieving, um, through the creative process, through the making, in her case, through the writing. Well, thank you for that. I, I totally agree with it. And, you know, it's a it's a lesson in experimentation that I found in my own life. And before you can even see it unfolding, you've got to just begin. And sometimes that hard part is beginning. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, sure. um, 
So I'd love to get your perspective on that place that you go into, whatever artist that you are, whether you're a songwriter or a designer, architect or theater, improv, whatever, whatever that is. Uh, is there some preparedness of getting in the into the the groove or the vibe or the space to really push the pen forward and and begin begin experimenting? Yeah, I can talk about that in a couple of different ways. the The broadest way I would talk about it is that sometimes when um, people first hear about this concept of make to know, um, they erroneously think it's, think I'm saying, you know, we'll, we'll build a plane as we fly. We'll, we'll just wing it. Um, uh, well, you know, it's just, it, 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 as if it, it doesn't take any great kind of preparation. Um, it's farthest thing from the truth. In fact, being able to, um, uh, brave this world of the unknown to have the courage to do it requires a lot of things. And one of them is uh, your skill, but generally speaking, our background, our education, our experience in life, our ethics, our values are all incredibly significant in what we ultimately can do in this process of making. But the distinction I make is that's the scaffolding we stand on as we reach into these places of the unknown, as we reach into these places of uncertainty. And it makes a huge difference. And talent and skill are part of that. And one of the great kind of lessons of this book from speaking with the artists and designers that I was able to engage with is that it, it's a it's like the greater the skill, the greater the artistic freedom. That that's, mm. a, that, that's a wonderful kind of relationship that so you create the discipline and you are able to go to places uh, that you couldn't imagine uh, you, you could go to, but it's because you're rooted in that skill that that's a possibility. So that's one form of the preparation. And the great example of that for me is uh, like the improvisation of the concert at home by a great pianist like Keith Jarrett on this broken piano and that whole wonderful story of what happened at that concert. But Keith Jarrett is the free, great improvising artist that he is because he knows his instrument cold, he knows the musical, the skill, the discipline, the talent, the hard work, everything that goes into it, that's the scaffolding. And then the sky's the limit. And it's sublime what he's able to do. So that's a great example of what I mean by this relationship between, or what I learned about this relationship between skill and artistic freedom or creative freedom. Another kind of preparation that people tell me about is because, well, let me take a step back and just say this place of uncertainty, which is such a necessary and fascinating part of the creative process, is, let's be honest, scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Like uncertainty <laughs> is. Especially when you've got a deadline. <laughs> exactly. Though that can help. That can help. Yes, that's it's true. A, it's, it's, it, it's a destabilizing place. And most often we think about it as a frightening place. And it's that the image of this blank page that we face as writers say. 
but it's but what 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 we learn from from the, the conversations I've been involved in is it's also a deeply creative space. So how do you get into it? I talked a little bit earlier about these points of entry that we go in, but there's also a level of courage that's necessary. And as the president of our design school, what I used to say is really what we're ultimately doing is teaching our students courage, mm. certainly courage to be themselves, certainly courage to find their own voice. But by giving them this skill, the background, the foundation, the opportunity, the community, the connection, all of that fortifies the spirit and helps support our entry into these worlds of the unknown so that we can create and we can be able to, and we can um, let discovery happen and unfold. So the preparation, um, that is also in fortifying our spirit, fortifying our courage to be able to go forward with that and finding those things in our lives. And it's different for different people that gives us the courage to go in there. Now, sometimes it's just not a physical or emotional. It's not just a, an emotional kind of thing. It becomes very physical. And so a novelist like Amy Bender, who I interview in the book, says, here's what I do. I sit down for an hour and a half every day and I write. And when that's over, I leave. And that's my discipline. And it's the physical act of sitting there and just beginning to go that gives her the strength to go into these worlds of the unknown. For other people, it can be much more heady. It can be much more something or something that compels them emotionally. I mean, there are all kinds of different ways in which we do it. But I love that for her, it was just, I have to sit down. And she said, the joke was that with her first novel, and by the way, I recommend to your listeners, Amy Bender's novels, they are brilliant and they are stirring and they are wonderful. But she said, the joke was that I, in my first novel, I just tied myself to the chair for <laughs> the 90 minutes just to make sure that I wouldn't go anywhere. And I just stayed there because it's interesting. And, and some other artists talk about this in the book too. We want to, we want to kind of, when we're starting to get to places of discoveries, things that are new, if there's a frightening aspect of it, or there's a discomfort and our bodies want to go away. We want to sort of get up. We want to clean our drawers. We want to call our moms, whatever we need to do at that particular moment. And so in a way, to simply say, no, for this, it's only 90 minutes, and she's not writing the rest of the day. I am here and I am present. That's her way of entering uncertainty. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of different ways. So in short, to answer your question, the preparation happens in a lot of different ways. It happens by how we live our lives. It happens by the disciplines we pursue. It happens by the expertise we create. And sometimes it just happens by tying ourselves to a chair. It's funny how when you do create that time, that discipline time, as she was mentioning that, yeah, the dog needs to get fed suddenly and you know, all right. of these things come up right, until right, you get right. settled enough into the rhythm of the doing, the making right. to know. Right. Um, you know, my friend, uh, Roseanne Summerson, who um, uh, was the president of uh, RISD, um, uh, talked about um, a, a, one way in which she taught her students is she actually, for that very reason, um, if the if the class if it was a two hour studio class or whatever, she would make sure that they 
had a sufficient amount to eat, that they had a sufficient amount to drink, um, that they were, uh, you know, they had gone to the bathroom, they were all prepared. And the, the exercise was they had to sit and sketch for those two hours and couldn't leave and couldn't move. And it was precisely to get them past this moment of discomfort when you want to get distracted, when you want to move away. It became a kind of pedagogical approach <laughs> that I thought was fascinating. Stay with it. And staying with it means that you are staying in an unknown place. You don't know where it's going. But the riches of the discovery that can come from staying present with something are incredible. Sometimes you may come out flat. That's true. But in a practice of regularly doing that, you are setting yourself up for that opportunity to find something to discover, to get past what maybe your body would even interrupt and not allow you to do because it gets fidgety and it wants to do whatever it wants to do in feeding the dog or cleaning the drawer or whatever. It's a really interesting part of this whole process and what that discipline and preparation means. So how do you balance, you know, the present moment, as you had mentioned, because there's a lot that comes through in the present moment if we're just sort of in tune and listening or in the shower or wherever having fun. You know, I'll give an example, like uh, songwriters. I've heard some songwriters say that the idea sort of pass them by the melody or the song or the lyrics or some portion of it. And they felt as though if they didn't grasp it and write it down or get on the piano or guitar and play with it a little bit, that it would pass them by. And that's mm -hmm. all about to that trust and present moment and allowing things to come in and through mm -hmm. and, I love what you said about the the scaffolding and the skills and then and then that present moment piece and all of that sandwiched together is what can spark your imagination. Right, right. Yeah, the the um it, it's it's interesting um how how and when things come to us. Um and uh, you alluded to this, but I'll, I'll just make a point of it. The single most common statement by the hundreds of artists and designers I talked to was this. I thought of the idea in the shower. <laughs> and there is really something interesting about that. It's, and, and what I suggest is we need to think about that shower moment, or for some people it's driving, for other people it's doing the dishes, whatever. We need to think about those moments as part of our work, part of the creative process, not something separate from it. It's not sitting in the studio. It's not in front of your computer or, uh, what, or in front of the, the clay wheel or whatever it is. But you are, in fact in a different space, you've given yourself some room, you've given yourself a different kind of context. 
and it naturally kind of frees up something that is able to come to you. And again, what the artists and designers tell me is that's not separate from it's part of for sure what the process can be. When you begin to think about it, you begin to think about a whole range of things that are relevant to your making, a whole range of things that it can can work toward supporting what it is you're trying to do. The novelist Amy Tan says, there's a, a cosmology we make as we're getting into projects. She says, uh, again, she's hilarious. She says, I want to use quantum mechanics as the metaphor. It's something I know nothing about, but I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> and she begins to talk about particles and string theory and gravitational all forces. All that cool stuff. All, all that cool <laughs> stuff that happens when you're involved. But it's not just when you're in the studio. Or it's not right. just when you're writing that paragraph. And she says, I'm thinking about a character and I want to place that character in a certain point of history. And I put my hand up and I take a book off the shelf and I open it. And it, the book opens to... That chapter that happens to align perfectly with what I was re wrestling with. And how does that happen? Yeah, the and mystery. what comes first? Yeah, and what comes first? But these are all the uh, moments that have deep relevance to what we're creating because in that creative, in, in, in that creative process, we're, we, we are even unconsciously opening ourselves to certain kinds of things are being able to see the world in a certain kind of way because we are hmm, immersed and uh, um, sensitized by what it is we're doing and how we're engaging. It's just wonderful. I mean, it's just like the most interesting thing in the world to me that what seems random actually like quantum mechanics can begin to find a kind of structure and a reality and something that ultimately nourishes us and our souls as we engage in the creative process. So I'm just going to riff a little bit on that idea. I quote, above all, remember that you must build your life as if it was a work of art. So when we're thinking about our experiences, whether we're playing, working, being disciplined or not in the creative process. It's in the beingness and living and experiencing and being in the moment that it all works together in some sort of creative symphony. Well, this is the deep fascination I have with, um, with this idea of make to know and what we've discovered. And that quote that you have about living your life as if it were a work of art comes from a great um, I, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who I quote, um, that's his quote, that's his, what he says. And what I always assumed he meant was he had this concept of radical amazement with the world. And I always thought he, he meant that, that it was uh, the radical amazement that one would experience in sort of looking at the beauty and, this, and, this, and the wonder of the world. Um, but what this um, book helped me understand was living your life as a work of art is also recognizing how fundamental make to know is to so much of what we do that and again it's this 
my, my, my intention in this book, which all culminates in that last chapter, is to say, here's what artists and designers define for us. They define this process. But the bigger point is a celebration of humanity in a way. This democratizes creativity, not only because it opens the door for anyone really to be engaged in a creative process. They may not have the scaffolding to be as good as Picasso, but they can engage nonetheless and they can be part of it. That creativity isn't something that is only for the genius, only for the elect few who have some kind of special power, but it's actually a very human kind of thing. If in fact we are willing to go through this process to brave this world of uncertainty and even to whatever extent we can build the scaffolding that allows us to improve or to reach higher into this space of the unknown. And when you sort of extrapolate that, then what you get is this sense of um, a celebration of the human, the human capacity to make. And you just begin to apply it to different things outside of, quote unquote, the world of art and design. And I explore how a toddler learns to walk is a kind of make to know process. I explore how speech is an improvisational. It too is a make to know process. When you're speaking extemporaneously, you are in a form of improvising. You have a frame, you have a language system, you have some thoughts. But how many of us are actually like Joan Didion, as we speak, we're kind of conceptualizing, we're, we're, when, when speech is, when conversation is most alive, it has that spontaneous energy to it, that there is, and we sense that in each other, a discovery to what's happening as the conversation ensues. If it's just wrote and, and scripted, it, it has a different quality to it, a flatness sometimes that doesn't engage us in the same kind of way. And then you begin to think about, well, um, how we educate our children. And to what extent do we, you know, teach to the test or have a vision for what they need to know versus creating a frame. And I talk a lot about frames in the book or a kind of North star, a goal or whatever, however we want to talk about it. And we move towards something in the creation of an educational project. One of the things as an educator that I find to be interesting and a little dismaying is that from a very good part of ourselves, we create, we and we build curricula on the basis of requirements because we want to make sure our student has X and our student has Y and our student has Z. And so we, we make these requirements and really requirements are to a certain degree necessary in any curricular design. But in, at the end of the day, it's a very uncreative way, really, to create an educational learning context. And what if we instead built frames? What if instead we built possibilities where students were in, in, in a certain way um, entering the unknown and that there was a, a flow, a breeze that blew through their work so that the opportunity moment could happen, an improvisation could happen, a, 
a spontaneous kind of discovery could happen, a participation in something not already determined could be possible. And then you look at educators who have done this. You look at the constructionists who have done this. You look at um, the ways in which um, art-based and design-based education can you know, can create these contexts. You look at someone, someone like Doreen Nelson, who has built this design-based learning, where she teaches Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, by having students build these cities in which the cities take on, these model cities take on the values of a dynamic that's going on in that novel. These are just all examples of a different way to engage and a different way for us not only to build the structure of the curricula, but actually engage students in a creative in a creative way with what it is that they're learning. And then and you can think about it in terms of leadership, too, how much I'm a theater director and a trained theater director and how much that informed the way in which I led and was president of a college, right, to create a context for people to participate. And in this, I should tell a story because this is um, this this kind of sums up so much of what I'm saying here, and that's the story of the intersection in Holland, which I, I'm sure you read about. And um, just for your listeners, it was it's a story of um, uh, happened about 20 years ago in this town in Holland. Um, it was an incredibly dangerous intersection, and cars were continually. Um, um, uh, 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 smashing into each other and pedestrians were being knocked over and bicyclists were being injured and it was just a mess. And the response of the traffic authorities was to create more and more restrictions. And so they put up more and more signs, slow down here and yield to this. And, and all the instructions that presumably would bring a safer solution to that particular intersection. But nothing worked. And a uh, traffic designer by the name of Hans Monderman came along and took a look at this situation. And he felt like you, rather than add, especially add authoritarian instruction, what you need to do is you need to open it up, clear away, subtract. And he was fascinated with what happens in a skating rink. And he observed human beings in a skating rink, in a really crowded skating rink, and noted that, for the most part, they were really careful. There was almost an instinct in which you didn't bump into each other because you were there was some part of you that was aware and allowed you to kind of go and let others go as well. I mean, there's always some people who disturb that, but basically that, or a flock of birds moving in the in the sky, a school of fish, how they move in this kind of precise choreography. And so what Monderman did is he took away everything in that intersection, knocked it down and built a roundabout. And immediately the accidents went to zero. The pedestrians were no longer hurt. The bicyclists were safe. And so you begin to think about what happened there and people would approach the intersection without any instruction. They would see this roundabout and they would sort of naturally slow down. They became part of the solution. They owned their own safety in this. 
And the roundabout allowed for a kind of interaction that was um, that if, if you if you take the metaphor here, they made their own safety. They were participants in a making of their own safety. And so for me, that becomes this wonderful image of leadership. What 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 are we doing as leadership? Are we saying, I have the vision, follow me, I know all the answers. Or as leaders, do we have deep values and ethics and ideas to be sure, but we build context, we build conditions, we build roundabouts for human thriving, meaning that the participants, the communities we work with are in a way making their own progress, making their own safety, making their own growth, making their own thriving, because they are suddenly allowed to be participants in that and no longer dictated to or being told to. You can't do it without structure. But that roundabout is a structure. And that just so speaks so deeply to what my work was as a president of a college, too, that it wasn't so much, here, I have a vision, follow me, like Michelangelo, like I was saying, I know that mm -hmm. I see the angel on the stone. But it was much more, we have these values, we have these ideas, we have this commitment, we have this mission, and let's together go into places of uncertainty and make this great school or make this great community. Nice. So to go back, the application, the understanding of the significance of making and knowing and how it works is not something just about art and design. It's about how we live our lives. It's about our relationships. It's about psychoanalysis. It's about educating. It's about leading. It just touches. And it's about being a great athlete, too, by the way. There are so many different ways in which you can understand how significant it is and what the implications are for how we live. You mentioned, uh, which I thought was really interesting, Roundabout to Thriving. That could be your next book title. Mm. <laughs> It's amazing. Good. <laughs> uh, so you covered a lot there. Thank you for that. One of the things that I'd love to touch upon is the fact that all of us have it within us, this creativity, and it can be expressed in many different forms, as you had said. So for those listening who are not, don't consider themselves, you know, creative in any way, there's a bit of a mindset shift that could take place to potentially change that to explore a little bit on the things that do really interest them because we all have it. We all have it within us. And then I'd love to bridge into the, the business world and what mm -hmm. that means as we're working to together on creative projects or business projects. Um, and you've got an example of the make to know in, in business that I'd love for you to share. So hmm. door wide open for you. Well, one of the um, wonderful um, and consistent responses to the book is, um, you know, you, you, you kind of set me free. Um, meaning uh, I was stuck in, thinking that I needed that vision and that my work would be the manifestation of that vision. Um, and to be honest with you, a big and very compelling 
reason for me to write the book was because, you know, the, our, the students at Art Center, um, these brilliant, creative, profoundly talented people, actually were stuck often and saying, thinking that they couldn't go forward with their project unless they had it all figured out. And, and in a way, this was my, my um, communication with them to, it's powerful, you know, to, to, to have the courage to go to a place of the unknown. And, and, and again, the letters and the responses to this book um, often are very much about a kind of st statement of gratitude that people feel set free that they realize that they were in fact stuck because they thought they had to know it all. Right. And, and, you know, I, not to, wear this out too much, but how many of us are stuck in life or how many people do we know who are stuck in life? Because I don't, I can't make this decision because I don't know what, the, what, I don't know it all yet. Um, uh, I'm not, I can't engage in this particular relationship because I'm, I, you know, when are we ready? When are we, I can't pursue this particular course of study. I can't per, pursue this particular profession. And we all have it. And at what point do we feel like, well, okay, we can take the step and we can have confidence or realize that there is a beauty past that step. There is something that will be discovered and then we can respond to that. Maybe it's not the right move. Maybe it's some, but we, we take it in. We have the power or the, again, the courage. That's where I keep on going to enter a place of uncertainty. And to know when, you know, that question is alive for us. I'm not recommending that we always do this. And when we take reckless ways of going through sure. all that scaffolding is necessary, that preparation, those ethics, those values that, so I don't want to be misunderstood. Right. But nonetheless, we can't live life without going into uncertainty. That is the project really. Right. And so that gets back to what you were saying before. And the, the idea that, uh, who we are as human beings and our capacity at, for making. And I go to making instead of being creative because immediately creative is, oh, I'm not an artist. Okay, you're not an artist, but I would say you are a maker. Because we make life. We have to make life. That's what we do. We make relationship. We make marriages. We make careers. And we don't know what's going to happen, but we engage that way. And so th those are the dynamics that interest me and hopefully allow people, even if they don't see themselves as artists, to really understand that there's some part of our humanity that thrives in the making. In a way, you know, there are very few things in which we're not makers. So anyway, that's that's one one point that you were... And then did you want to talk about uh, Steve Jobs? Did you want to move into that? Yeah, let's say, you know, because the make to know idea, especially in the business environment, that's a, a wonderful example that you open your book with. So yeah, have at it. It's a really good story. Right. So, so the, the story is um, about the about the development and the design of the Apple store. And I happened to be able to interview uh, Tim Kobe, who was the lead designer who worked with Steve Jobs. Um, to develop the Apple Store, and the the great thing about th that story, as as Tim tells it, is that you know 
we think about deservedly about Steve Jobs as this incredible visionary, as this incredible genius who put that company and set that company on it, founded it and set it on its way in various phases. Um, and, um, and, and therefore we might imagine some of us that the Apple store, that incredible space that you see uh, thousands of versions of it, um, always crowded, that that was the great vision of Steve Jobs. This is what I want it to look like. But in fact, when you talk to Tim about the process, it was nothing of the sort. That was not, you know, it didn't uh, spring from the head of Jobs like Athena from Zeus. It was <laughs> actually a process riddled with a tiresome one at that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We want to explore a flagship store. We want to explore a retail, a dedicated retail outlet for Apple. But what would that space be? What would it look like? And what would it Tim feel said, like? We started, we started on the whiteboard. They started with that basic making of you know, marker on whiteboard of sketching, of playing, of erasing. And you begin to learn the whole story of how it developed, how they built these models in some secret warehouse in Sunnyvale, California, in which Steve had to interact with it, had to feel it, how they un tried to understand what those tables would be, why, how, how the, the whole of that store, all its elements, all its material, all its way of setting up space, all its way of presenting product came from a making process of trial and error, of improvising, of it was something that evolved through the making and only known by engaging in that particular process. And the story I tell is, here's something we all know. How did it come to be? It came to be through a make-to-know process. And here's the guy who was involved and who's telling us that story. And it's beautiful. It's stirring. It's compelling. And to the credit of the readers of this book, it's freeing in a way to think that something like that came through this kind of process. You wrote it. So just to elaborate on that story, I, th I thought it was really interesting about the fact that it wasn't just any size prototype model. It was life size, yeah. life size all the way down to the stone that would be utilized on the outside of the building and how the rain might affect that. And right. so it's interesting to think about the experience that they wanted to create and how they wove their way through many different iterations and trials and ups and downs, I'm sure, to right. to right. arrive at a place that they felt comfortable enough to set forth and reveal. Right, right. And all the principles we've been talking about were also present. I mean, it wasn't just it, it wasn't just kind of um, you know building the plane as they as they were flying. There was. A, there was preparation, there was understanding, there was a sense of the retail outlet, there was a great skill of the design um, uh, uh, team that was part of it. There was a sense of deep values about Apple and what it meant to make Apple the the kind of every person's access to technology, right? The, uh, Tim talks about the mouse. The mouse was something that allowed all of us to be able to participate in 
in, in, in rather than code and 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 um, being lost in it the most, just simplified and allowed us to access something. And those were deep values, and those were, that was the entry point that Tim talks about. So all the things that we've been talking about are really present in that story in all kinds of really interesting ways. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about your podcast, Change Lab. Mm. What brought that about? And even the name, Change Lab, I mean, that's doesn't get better than that. Where did, how did you start it? Why did you start it? And uh, tell us a little bit more about that. So, so um, for, for the listeners, I was uh, I was president of Art Center College of Design in Pasadena um, for thirteen years. I, I just left a few months ago. Um, it's a beautiful place. It was the most inspiring job of my life, um, and uh, it's a, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degrees that we we offer there, um, and. Um, I, maybe I should begin by saying the mission statement of Art Center College of Design is learn to create influence change. That's the whole thing. Um, you know, and, and in a way we were deliberately trying to challenge expectation. You know, usually you go on a website, you see a college mission. The uh, mission of so-and-so institution is to et cetera, et cetera, and, 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 and fill in the blanks. But ours was different and deliberately different. And yeah, learn to create influence change. It was, it was a uh, we could we could memorize it. We could under it was simple. There was uh, again a poetic quality into it. You could switch words around, right? Learn to change, influence and create however you wanted to do it. But there was a, so a playfulness and a creativity kind of built into it, it um, making engagement with the mission statement, if you will. So influencing change and creating change was a big part of what we did and how we thought about our work. And so create change was just a natural kind of title for, um, for the podcast. How did it come about? There were all these fascinating conversations that were happening on campus, all these great issues that we were dealing with. Um, all kinds of wonderful ways in which we were really interrogating some of the most important issues about creativity and culture and the place of the artist and the designer. And so the idea of the podcast was simply let's share those conversations with the greater community. And it was a wonderful way for me to bring on all these incredible guests and to learn from them and to engage in these rich and beautiful questions. And that's the story of Change Lab. Well, you do a beautiful job with it. I Thank was you. my, I think it was the second podcast I listened to. I was walking and I was like, oh, this will, this will be perfect. I've got a little bit of time to, you know, listen to one of Lauren's podcasts. And I came, um, I came up with um, one of your guest speakers, it was Ivy Ross from Google. Mm -hmm. And I just loved your conversation. I mean, you went deep and wide in that conversation. So kudos to you both. Um, well, you talked about many things, but within that conversation, you talked about constraints and opposites in the creative process, which I thought was spot on and so true. 
and how it can be reframed to aid us in our discovery versus being experienced as a burden. So, you know, having some requirements or limits is not always a bad thing. It gives us our boundaries within which we work. Well, you, you got it. I mean, you're, you're spot on. That's the, that's the principle. And that get, came through multiple interviews with, with uh, artists and designers for the book. And, and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It was addressed in a really interesting way by Ivy. Um, and, and, you know, I can extrapolate the principles there that I, I feel like we're, we're that, that we learn from these conversations. One is that it's interesting. Discovery is not something we can control directly. That what we do is we make the conditions for its realization. And that, again, puts the emphasis in a different place. It opens up a different kind of possibility. It focuses our attention. And I think what is an important way, it's not always on the thing itself as it is to uh, construct that roundabout or make that condition possible for discovery to happen. And one of those elements are, are constraints. And as you saw in the book, how many artists and, and designers in particular um, talked about constraints as a stimulus to creativity? as you just said, and not a reject, some sort of a, a limitation of creativity. That if you, you know, I mean, as a theater artist, I can tell you that the constraint of opening night, there was nothing like it, right? That you had to go to that particular, get that, get, get the show ready for that time. And it always felt a little magic to me, you know, we'd be involved in technical dress rehearsals or whatever, and the show just looked a total mess. But opening night came, and we it was a constraint, but it allowed us to rally and make something possible in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that was quite alive, actually. It goes back to what I was saying about conversation. When conversation is, a, is spontaneous or is, is, is uh, a part of a making, you respond to it in a certain way. And Spectators in the theater uh, know that too. They they respond to uh, the energy that's created by uh, that 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 kind of moment. And uh, anyway, that happened. Uh, that kind of constraint, or you can think of uh, constraints in the design project, whether that's a, a budgetary constraint or a time constraint or a focus in terms of you know really narrowing or zeroing in on the problem that you're trying to solve. And understanding that and all that constraint that paradoxically opens possibilities rather than limit them. I'd love to talk about um, flow and inspiration and designing the yet to be state, the future state. You can share a little bit about that. Well, um, the concept of of flow is one that you know you know is is just uh, a fascinating one. I, I, I don't uh, you know how many listeners have have read the book by Csikszentmihalyi, but it's a um, it's a beautiful book, and it's a state um, that we can get into um, where you know the that the. the our, our creative energies are just all in sync and something is coming through in a very, very powerful way. And again, from all that we've talked about today, 
um, you know, from my point of view, and it, it lines up well with what Csikszentmihalyi talks about, you know, the, it, it, it also, it, it's, it's, it's discipline. It's, it's the scaffolding that you build. It's the courage to go into uncertainty. It's the willingness to make within that context, et cetera, that, that becomes so important to um, allowing that flow state to take place. Um, and I would add that that flow state is something that I think touches so many different parts of our lives as we were, as we were suggesting earlier. So, so that, you know, be, in and of itself becomes a, um, um, a, a really important way of thinking about how we create conditions that allow for something that to, to happen. As I just said, it's not so much that we can direct or control discovery as much as we can make conditions for that to happen. You think about flow the same way. We make the conditions for flow to happen in an important way. Now I've lost your question. What was the other piece of it? I'm sorry. I, I got so preoccupied with flow that I, I flowed right out of it. No, you answered it, but we were talking about the yet-to-be state, the future uh, state. Right, right, right. So um, uh, that has very much to do with um, design in particular. And um, just to go back to the book for a second, uh, what I tried to do is talk about making in different ways. Um, and and the, the four things I really focus on are, um, again, entering uncertainty, which we've talked a lot about engaging materials, which is a way of making um, very specifically that people talk about as a way toward knowing. Um, a, a, a fourth one in performance is improvisation. Improvisation is a wonderful parallel to the idea of make to know, because in a way, if you think about improvisation, the thing in the process of being made and the thing being the, the thing um, in process and the thing being made are one and the same. There's a kind of an alignment to it that without the making process, improvisation doesn't happen. And it, the product of improvisation is obviously the making itself. So there's a kind of alignment there that's quite beautiful. And in that chapter, I talk a lot about what that kind of making is for performers in theater and in music. But the the fourth one is really problem solving, and that really is the realm of designers, and designers talk mostly about that. And if you think about the understanding make to know through the lens of solving problems, that becomes the designing process, the making process that is addressing a particular problem and finding a creative solution to it and discovering the yet to be. And so it's very much tied to the identification of that. One of the ways of make to know is the problem solving idea. Designers talk about solving problems as kind of axiomatic. It's what they do and it's how they think and how they approach the world and how their own creativity comes alive. And the interviews and the stories I tell are all about understanding that making process through the lens of problem solving and finding the yet to be. And maybe what sparks, I'm, I'm surmising here, but maybe what sparks you about that is the kind of, um, the beauty that's inherent in knowing that something that doesn't exist or hasn't taken form at this moment through our energies can take form in another and we can't know exactly what that is, but we can engage in a process, in a making to find it. 
Yeah, that's beautifully with said. Implications, with all those implications that we talked about earlier. Yeah. You refer to it as obviously make to know throughout my life. I always called that process for myself, making something out of nothing and mm-hmm. in, in the energy that you utilize in doing that. And at times it can compound really great, like inspirational energy of, oh, this is coming together and creates that excitement. And then some other times it can, you know, just make you wonder, will I get there? And that's why I have so much respect for people who do improv because there's a letting go in that. There's a, there's a trusting and a faith when you're doing improv and you're standing up there and it's like, okay, it's go time. Am I going to have the material? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, just a, a comment about improv. Um, uh, and I touch on this a bit in the book is, uh, the neuroscientific studies that were conducted of the brain on improv. And it's just so, so interesting to me, um, that, that, those studies reveal something of um, so important that at once we're, it's revealing something about who we are and the parts of the brain that light up that are part of our autobiography, to quote one of the neuroscientists, um, that autobiographical center of our brain that, that speaks so that that gets lit up in improv. I mean, that's really interesting. Again, in the kind of Joan Didion spirit, something of ourselves is coming to us or we're having being able to access. Um, but the other part of it that I loved was that the improvising brain mirrors the brain in REM sleep. And then you begin to think about improvising and dreaming as being kind of related. And that dreaming, in a way, is a make-to-know process that we naturally engage in. We make our dream, and in that process, discover again uh, we make the dream, but we discover or can discover something about ourselves or conversely to say maybe improvisation is a kind of waking dream because the same things are activated in the brain. Anyway, the relationship of those two, and and again, to if, if listeners are not yet convinced, understand the uh, ubiquity of make to know, there it is. We can think about it in this neuroscientific way as being deeply related to something as fundamental as dreaming. Dreaming. And also when I read that, I really got the, the, the idea that it's getting into the heart space too. When you're dreaming, it's not just all about the mind and. Well said. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. Really getting into your body and your heart. The book, why was the timing now, or, you know, what is it, two year, 2021, you wrote the book. Why then in your life? What was that about? Great question. Yeah. um, I've alluded to a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to communicate with my students. I wanted to help them set set them free a little bit from some of the the things that were holding them back or or constraining them. and I think I also felt like it was really important after a career of serving as a leader to talk about what that was for me and what that meant for me. I think that would be a second one. 
meaning, you know, when people would ask me, you know, what's your vision for Art Center or what's your vision for this college that I was present over that, um, I always I, I said, and I confess in the book, I always felt a little insecure about <laughs> I have values, I have commitments, I have these strong beliefs in what education can do and what it means to education, educate creative people. But I heard them say, what, what's the angel in the stone? And I didn't have that. What I had was a desire to take those values and the deep commitments and to enable a community to thrive, to build roundabouts, as I was saying earlier. So that was an important piece, too, to really talk about a kind of uh, leadership approach that had less to do with I know the answers and more to do with I can create the conditions for discovery. I can work with a community to create the conditions for discovery, because what the community knows is so infinitely deeper and more uh, um, important and broader than anything that could be in my brain or mine you know, uh, or my heart for that matter. But together we can create something collectively. So I think that was the other piece. Then I would say a third piece, and this is forming for me, is a spiritual piece. And um, what it means to make relationship with something larger than ourselves, what it means to make relationship with God or with the universe or however one wants to talk about it. What prayer might mean as a making, as an improvisation, what community building might mean in terms of kind of a larger community making together might mean in terms of a larger spiritual reach. I think those things are stirring a lot within me personally at this juncture. There are some deeper questions that are really important to me. and. I, I think if 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 we can um, take these principles of our capacity to make, our capacity to understand ourselves through making, our capacity to go to places we don't know, our capacity to make cosmologies that have all these different kinds of particles and gravitational pulls, to use Amy Tan's metaphor, maybe there's a, that's a way to know a deeper experience. Maybe that's a way to resonate with the world, with the universe, with the miracle of our lives in a different way. And um, I think that was behind the writing too. And I wanted to take some steps with that. That seeped out for sure in your writing, the emphasis on meaning, although you didn't necessarily have to use that word in particular, it, it seeped through what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and and in a way, um, uh, you know, our, our our mutual admiration for James Hollis. Uh, he talks about finding meaning, but in a way, if you substitute the word "making meaning," there's a lot of connections with uh, uh, what it is that I'm talking about. And he's a rock star. What what interests me? Yeah, he's a beauty. <laughs> he's a beauty. The best. I'd like to close with this final question for you, Lauren. You wrote Leonard Cohen's reference in the book, <clears throat> Anthem. Uh, I'll quote it. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light shines through. So what's the crack of light bringing to you now in, in your life? What's next for you? Um, well, we're, we're um, you know, we talked about James Hollis and Leonard Cohen. We're beginning to form the Pantheon in, a, in an interesting way here for me. 
Um, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's right. So um, it, 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 in a way, you know, um, the, the, the lyric that precedes that is uh, forget your perfect offering, you know, that it, you, you know, and this goes back to something earlier that we were saying <laughs> that you don't need to know everything. Um, there are, there are cracks, there are fissures, there are mistakes, there are left turns, there are things that we do that are um, uh, complicated. Um, but if you understand it again, in terms of a making, maybe in terms of a repair, of those shattered vessels, then you begin to understand how the light comes through. Uh, you know, for me, I'm I'm uh, uh, involved now in another book um, and writing that. Um, and oh, congratulations! Uh, just, to, just to briefly tell you, the question I'm trying to address in that book is the kind of persistence of our experience in so many ways as as um, an experience of ambiguity. Um, that we live in gray zones and that we um, often, I think, falsely or you know, problematically, maybe is the better word, impose certain binaries or certain black and white solutions to what must necessarily remain gray. Um, and uh, the best movies and the best films and the best books I've read the, the, always talk about the ambiguity of human experience. Um, that's what, in fact, becomes a kind of truth for us. But we can't hover in ambiguity. For example, as a leader, I couldn't hover in ambiguity. I, even though I knew a situation that came to me was fundamentally ambiguous, I, I needed to make choice. So that's mm -hmm. sort of what the book is about. How, how do we make choice, not just as leaders, as human beings? In general, how do we make choice amidst ambiguity? How do we make a decision? How do we move forward against a backdrop of gray? And that backdrop of gray is persistent in the plays of Samuel Beckett, that backdrop of ambiguity, even in a didactic play by Bertolt Brecht, is fundamentally, uh, um, uh, it fundamentally remains, even though he's trying to override it. But nonetheless, the poet comes through and creates that situation that is un unresolved. Um, and, and so I'm doing these short essays on Beckett, on Brecht, on... Uh, um, uh, on a variety of different uh, films and books to try to explore this, but with a kind of a, despite the heaviness of what I just said, also with a lighter touch, meaning I'm also talking about the ambiguity of growing tomatoes and I'm fascinated with eels and there's all sorts of other <laughs> essays that I'm putting in All kinds of topics. That will, that will be woven through because really what I want to do is just present these various different ideas, these different ways of exploring and open them up to allowing the reader just to kind of knit the essays together in whatever way that they they deem appropriate or they want to. So that's um that's taking up a lot of my time right now too. Well, it sounds like you've got some wonderful plans in place and I just can't thank you enough. I think you're dynamite and I have your book right here and for any, for those of you still, let me also say, thank you very much. Let me also say to the listeners that I just did the um, audiobook version of Make to Know. Yes, and, uh, so it's out now too. So uh, yes. yeah, if, if people who might want to listen and take walks and listen to it, it's. Uh, I yeah, think that's anyway. great. That's great. So thank you, Lori. Thank you for um, you know taking the initiative to to reach out, and it's just been a delight talking to you. Thank you. It's been great getting to to know you a little bit more behind the book. So with that, 
I want to thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing your next book come out. Thanks so much, Lori. If you'd like more information about Lauren and his book, Make to Know, you can find his book online and in stores. The audio version is now available on all platforms, so please check it out. And if you're interested in learning more about life design and interior services that I offer, please visit my websites and reach out via the contact forms on lifedesignwithpurpose.com and Bellevue at Bellevue.design. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.